So, <clears throat> preaching from the book of James. I've got to confess that early on in my life, I didn't look at the book of James very often because it always made me feel guilty. <laughs> you know, it's like all these things I'm not doing, right? Faith without works is dead. Well, I didn't work. Was my faith really alive? I mean, whoa, this is just such a heavy book. So as I started thinking about it, it it's, it's changed over the years for me, and I want to share with you a couple things that I do to take a look at the book of James, and I want to start with thinking about who James can be for us. Because for more than 40 years now, I've tried to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and tried to reflect his love to the world around me. And over those years, I mean, I've got a ton of great education, a ton of great experiences and other equipping opportunities. And yeah, when I look over all of these different things that God has given me in my life, I can say that there's one thing that has helped me learn how to follow Jesus to do what he did more than anything else. And that is the presence of a, of a, of a faithful model, someone whose example I can follow. Sometimes that example, that model, will be found in a biography that I'm reading. Sometimes it's found in a friend. Sometimes it's found in a person I'm observing from a distance. I think it could even be found in a well-crafted character in a movie or in a, in a TV series. Once I get to know this person a little bit and understand a little of why they do what they do, I find myself, I'm able then to take what they've done and adapt it to my context and to, to my own personality. You see, while I can memorize the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, I don't truly understand it at an emotional level until I see the way it's played out in the world. Because observing how someone else follows Jesus can help me learn how to follow Jesus well. So to me, the book of James can become that kind of model for us. Because when we read these things in the book of James, we are reading what James used to do. We are reading the way that he used to live out Christ's love in the world. We know that James was the half-brother of Jesus, the younger brother of Jesus. He grew up with our Lord, and somewhere along the way, he put his full trust and faith in Jesus as God's anointed Messiah. And later on, it says in, in, the, in Corinthians, that Jesus, after his resurrection, even went to meet with James. And I wonder what they talked about. You know, <laughs> kind of settling a few things as they were kids, I don't know. But Jesus saw something very important in James and pulled aside to talk to him after the resurrection. When we learn a little bit about who James is and think thoughtfully about what he says, we find practical and specific model for what a life of faith looks like. I'm going to tell you, as I said, this is a challenging, but it's a very insightful book. So let me be clear for, as I can from the start. This book is not a list of rules that we have got to learn to follow. That's not what this book is about. It's a letter from someone who knows Jesus, and he's showing us how love responds to love. So at a very practical and emotional level, we see how our response of love to the glove God's given to us is what is sent out to the world and to others. Now, I need to, need to offer a warning here, because this is what happens to me every time I find a model that I try to follow. Whenever I find somebody that is doing something well in following Christ, uh, they become like a window to me. When I look through them, I can see the, my life the way it could be, and it becomes a wonderful example to follow. But if I make the mistake to look at them, then I see my own reflection. 
And that always brings a problem because I always fall short of their example and I always fall short of what James will call the royal law of love later on in James chapter 2. And when, I, when I'm looking at the person, when I'm comparing to myself, it, it's never a good thing. And I feel bad. And I'm like, I can't do this thing. What am I trying? You know, blah, 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 blah. Whenever that happens, because it's going to happen at some point in time in the next several weeks for every one of us, when that happens, please remember to run to our Lord's gracious embrace. Because <laughs> this is about his love. You may not be able to accept yourself the way you are, but he does, okay, fully. And he embraces you at that time. So when that happens, just run into his gracious embrace. Because my goal here today is to simply help us get to know James a little bit better and to provide a perspective that helps us better understand some of the lessons and the themes we're going to experience in the weeks ahead. And maybe, just maybe by doing that, James might be able to become, for all of us, some level of a model, an example that we can follow of what it means to follow Jesus. And it all begins with the very first line from James 1, verse 1. He writes, this letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad, greetings. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are several people named James in the New Testament, but what we know about this James is that he was uh, so prominent that he did not need to have anything else behind his name. This wasn't James the Less. This wasn't James, son of Alphaeus. This was simply James. And when we look at the New Testament, there are two people who have that level of name recognition. One of them is James, the brother of John, who was one of the inner three, the inner circle of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the other is James the younger half-brother of Jesus. And I think for several reasons that that's who this author is. It's Jesus' brother. Now, if you were to talk to somebody from a non-English-speaking country and you were to pull out the book of James and you wanted to talk to them about James, they would call that the book of Jacob. Because in the Greek, James is actually Jacob. As a matter of fact, not just this James, but every James in the New Testament is actually in the Greek, Jacob. <laughs> and the reason for that is a centuries-old translational decision that was made hundreds of years ago uh, in how that was to be translated. And it's so deeply embedded in our English-speaking culture that it's hard to pull out of it. So I'm going to keep toting the lie a little bit <laughs> and calling him James just so we don't get confused. And if you'd like to know more about this little rabbit trail, um, I'll be talking about that at Facebook Live on Wednesday. Simply download the podcast or join us when we're there together. So let's begin by getting to know James a little bit better. Eusebius was a 4th century church leader in his story. He tells us that James was known for his piety and his prayers. In fact, James spent so much time in the temple praying and worshiping God that it was said that his knees became hard like those of a camel. Now, some modern commentators have said that his nickname was Camel Knees. I'm not sure they actually called him that. They had too much respect for the guy. But I do know they also called him, they called him James the Just because of his interest 
injustice and making sure that things were done the way the kingdom of God declared them to be done. He was following the line of the prophets and the justice that God wanted to see, and he was following his Lord's words, especially the words in the Sermon on the Mount. When you look at that, just look at the Sermon on the Mount, look at the book of James, consider what biblical justice means. You see it all throughout James's words. He was known as James the Just. For these reasons, James was respected by both Christians and Jews for his devotion to God. Though he wasn't one of the original 12 disciples, later on he was considered to be an apostle. He was the one that met with Saul, the Pharisee Saul, just three years after Saul's conversion. And he was the one that, that grew into leadership in the Jerusalem church. And he led that church for some 20 years until he was murdered by the high priest somewhere between 62 and 64 AD. And over those 20 years of leading and pastoring that church, his Jewish congregation experienced many things. It experienced uh, persecution, which scattered them all abroad. And so he had this massive congregation, and one day he shows up and they're all gone because of the persecution that was there. He also experienced ongoing growth as many Jewish individuals began to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And so from all walks of Jewish life, all the way to the priests and the leaders, people were putting their faith in Christ. Now, everyone who was part of this Jewish congregation, this Jewish Christian congregation, uh, was under the judgment of religious leaders and under the scrutiny of the people. And so they were accepted by the church community, but they were rejected by the culture in which they lived. That was a difficult place to be and a difficult environment in which to lead. James led this congregation through the emotional turmoil that developed when it, was aware, when it became aware that the Gentiles were accepted into God's family. I mean, these people that they could not have table fellowship with were now brothers and sisters. And all the struggles, read Galatians, read, read the book of Acts, and you see how hard it was for people to come through. Look at the, the tensions that were involved with that. I, I can't help but think, I was trying to think of a modern illustration. I think it was harder to lead a church through those kinds of emotions than it was to lead a church through, like, the COVID pandemic. I mean, yikes. That was a difficult time for them. He led through hard financial times as well, including the long difficulty that came through a famine that brought hunger and more economic hardship. Imagine trying to feed the hungry in your congregation when you yourself are not properly fed. James had a profoundly deep faith and love for God. He was called a pillar of the church and a peacemaker who led with wisdom and courage. When we look at James the man, we see a model that anyone could follow to learn what it means to love Jesus well and to become that person who follows Christ. So it's no surprise that he identified himself as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by saying that, he was acknowledging his willingness to be at the Lord's disposal and live according to the way Jesus taught. To be a slave of God challenging statement for all of us. This dear man said, I am writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Now my guess is that he was writing to members of his congregation. In his mind, he had in mind members of his congregation that he knew and loved that had been scattered by persecution or scattered by famine or scattered by some other hardship because they had to get up and move on. He was 
also had in his mind those that were coming to faith because of the witness of his, of his congregation and the witness of others who were out there. He was thinking of these kinds of people as he wrote, and by calling them the 12 tribes, he was communicating an Old Testament prophetic term, declaring that they were now the long-promised, restored people of God because of their faith in Jesus as Messiah. So in the pages of his little book, he offers the wisdom he has gained over the years of loving God in very practical ways. This letter is not about teaching new doctrine. His words are all about applying what we already know. And he focuses, as I said, on the Sermon on the Mount. We know the Sermon on the Mount, and he helps us see what applying the Sermon on the Mount means in day-to-day life. Now, the challenges James faced were not just inside the church. As I said before, famine had left many people with food insecurity, which only increased, you think about this, it increased the rising tensions between the different social classes. The poor became poorer. The rich began to grow in wealth. Politically, the seeds of revolution that would destroy the temple were being watered. As people in anger responded to one another with words and with actions, this is the stuff he talks about in this letter. The nation was in a long season of relational, economic, political, societal uncertainty. And the people were being polarized into more and more groupings that were extreme in their views. Does it have any connection to you today? Do you see any parallels with them and with us? So James writes about how those who follow Christ are to live in this kind of a world. Again, it's easy for us to read these words as if they are rules that we're to follow, but I want to guard us against that temptation. Because if we see them as a list of laws we're to follow, we're not doing the right job, you know, we're going to miss the power of what James is trying to get across. So let me offer you a lens that is helpful to me to look through as I consider these different words that James uses. And it's found right off the bat. You know, James 1.1, he starts off, declares who he is and who he's writing to, and then he goes in to give us this lens. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. I don't have a slide for you, but just listen to this. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, any kind of trouble, it might be economic, it might be political, it might be personal, it might be the trouble you have in raising your kids, it might be the trouble you have in caring for your aging parents, it might be trouble you have in health. Whatever kind of trouble you have, any kind of trouble comes your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Here's the lens to look through. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. See, James, like every one of us, knows that life is really, really hard. Difficulties are going to come our way because we live in a broken, fallen world. But he also knows that the trials we face don't have to have the last word tells us that God does an amazing work in the middle of our trials. While we are living and enduring through the suffering, God is doing an amazing work. He said that these things, through God's work, help us to become perfect and complete. Now those words, perfect and complete, teleos, those words have to do with becoming whole 
becoming full, becoming integrated. They point to a day when we will experience a full integration of our entire being. Today, in this fallen world, in our sin nature, we are currently disintegrated. But God is using the broken things of this world as a catalyst to heal us into wholeness, to take the fracturing and heal it to make us integrated human beings. Currently, as I said, we're disintegrated. In other words, one part of us does one thing over here and something totally different over here. Or there are parts of us that are at odds with each other, within ourselves, or at odds with what God wants. So, for whatever reason, one moment we're talking to over here, we get so excited and we praise God, we bless God, but then two minutes later we are cursing someone made in God's image, and James says that should never be. He says our lack of wholeness is what causes our tongues to be untamable, so that they become a restless evil full of deadly poison. It's our lack of being complete that leads us to show favoritism to one person over another, or causes us to to engage in arguments that develop anger that does not accomplish God's righteous purposes. Do you see the disintegration? We're not in alignment with what God wants. Everything James will say in this letter flows from our disintegrated self that God wants to heal into wholeness. The healing will be full and complete when Christ returns. But until then, we are to be about the task of trusting our Lord's promises so that we can see more and more us growing into the wholeness, the image of Jesus Christ. Let me give you another way that uh, helps me think about it. We operate within one of three different uh, levels of conviction. There's our public conviction, our private conviction, and our core convictions. Our public conviction is something that we express to others that we believe, but we really we know we don't believe it. We're just saying it to get something out of, out of the moment. So it's, it's Herod telling the Magi, once you find the child, let me know so I too can go and worship him. He didn't believe that. He had other things in mind, right? It's me nodding approval or agreeing with a group of people, even though I really don't agree with what they're saying because I want them to like me. That's our public convictions. Our private convictions are things that we think we believe, but when circumstances change, our true belief is seen, because what we believe is seen in how we live, actually. It's not just what we say. So it's kind of like the Apostle Peter, who on the last night in the upper room told Jesus, everybody else might run away from you, but I never will. I'll die for you, Lord. And then a couple hours later, situation changes, big mob comes, and he runs with everybody else. Weeps bitterly about that. Private conviction found out to be untrue because of his own actions. But then there's a thing called core convictions. Core convictions are those things that we believe so, so firmly that they change the way we act, they change the way we think, they change the way we even feel. Like a core conviction of the presence of gravity. I believe that. I believe that so much it changes the way I exit a building. I don't leave through my second floor window. <laughs> I go down the stairs and out the door. It changes the way I feel. When I get near the edge of something, I'm like, oh, I'm not going near. You know, it, it changes how I think. It changes the way I feel. It changes what I do. Through his spirit in us, Jesus is working to make his teaching, his teaching, his life, his way, fall into our core conviction and not just something else. 
For God will use the circumstances of this life to move us from disintegration to integration, from a public or private conviction to a core conviction, so that what we believe is clearly expressed in the way we think, feel, respond, and act. This is what James is getting at with everything that he writes, because he knows that we are more fractured than we care to admit, but God is on a ceaseless mission to bring us to wholeness. In speaking to a Jewish audience, James says that it all begins with wisdom that God gives to those who ask in faith. And in speaking to a Greek audience, Paul said it all begins with a renewed mind. So James says, ask God for wisdom and he will give it to everyone who asks. Paul says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Both the wisdom and the renewing of the mind are saying the same thing. God has revealed for us his wise pattern, a wise pattern for life in this kingdom. And out of love for Christ and what he has done, God's people will live out what God says is true more than what the world says is true. God's people will seek to align their lives with what God has said more than what they might think, feel, or believe. See, the book of James offers a practical model of what God's pattern of life looks like. James called himself a slave because God is the one who has the right to define how his people are to think, how they feel, and how they act, how they relate to each other. So this book is so much more than just faith without works is dead. This book is about living a life of love, what that love looks like as we respond to God and live in this broken world. And as we get to the days ahead, this thing to remember is that this letter is not about the work that I have to do for God. It is about the work that God is doing in us and the work that God is doing through us as we surrender more fully to him. My job is not to try harder. My job is to surrender into his life to allow the life that he has to flow more fully through me to this world. So today we start a journey through the book of James. My goal today was to help us get to know James a little bit, James, <laughs> James a little bit better, and um, provide a lens through which to see the entire book that we're going to be going through so that we can have a better way to think about the lessons and themes that we will see. And maybe, maybe along the way, we'll see this example of a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, this beautiful man named James. We will see in his example a model that we too could follow in our world. Mm -hmm.